The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to, the, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most for, of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this passage, and uh, thank you for the goodness of the gospel this morning, that we get to experience it, we get to hear it, and we get to know it. Uh, I pray, Lord, as my brother Josiah speaks, uh, comes up to speak this morning, um, that you just uh, give him the eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, and a heart that yearns for you. I pray, Lord, that uh, his, the mouth of his words and the meditation of his heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord. And so I pray that the gospel would grow richly in our hearts, and it would cut deeply and so speak to us, Lord. We give you our undivided attention. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, bro. <clears throat> ah, it's so great to see all you guys again. Um, so much has happened the last six months. I was here in January, and babies are born. I, I was kind of living under a rock, not much social media. So each person, I'm like, what's happened in your life? And weddings have happened, new jobs, and... Um, I mean, there was a wedding actually last night. Joe and Sarah just got married, and man, Joe's laugh. Oh, the joy of Christ in that laugh <laughs> and jumping up and down during the dance party. It was, it was so, such an amazing homecoming, going from Tijuana this last year to like this really fancy like wedding. It was just so sweet to talk with everyone. And so, yeah, if I haven't met you yet, I'm seeing a lot of new faces. Um, I would love to meet you at some point. Um, if you don't know, so my name's Josiah. I've been going here the last four years, and I just got sent by Grace City to um, this missionary training school in Mexico. I actually have a couple pictures. We had our graduation this Friday, and so we had 63 students. This is my campus I was staying on, and please don't share these photos at all because they're going to very um, closed countries, and uh, they want to keep their identity private. Um, and it was just amazing here in San Diego. We had our commencement on Friday, and these 63 students who are going all across the world, Uzbekistan, Jordan, uh, Middle East, Southeast Asia, China, Sudan, and some of them, we, I mean, we're living together this whole last year. We might never see them again because they're so far, and they'll be going with different agencies. So it was this sobering period of time, and we sung that same song, He Will Hold Me Fast. So started tearing up a little bit when we were worshiping this morning. But um, yeah, it was a super great time. You can go to the next photo. Um, this is the other campus. And um, yeah, the training was awesome. Like, they train uh, young people to go overseas for a lifetime. I mean, 15 to 20 years or so, you can come back later. But uh, in order to go to the, <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. Just throw away your calendar and any plans you have for your life. <laughs> um, but to go to an unreached language group. And so a place that has no access to the gospel in their language, no Bible, 
um, no active witness. And so all of us students are hoping to go across the world in that way. And so, um, yeah, it was such an encouraging time. You can go to the next photo. Some of the things we got to learn, uh, we, we learned uh, uh, culture and language is my language uh, teacher. Uh, and he taught me a little bit of Spanish, so I'll try a little bit. Esta es una foto uh, de la escuela y los estudiantes. Uh, y mi ayudante uh, trabaja una papelería bajando la calle. Y, yeah, so I just said, that's my language helping works down the street. Uh, <laughs> hopefully that was good for you guys who speak Spanish. Um, there's a few other things we got to do. Um, some culture, uh, we got to meet uh, a lot of families in the neighborhood going to a local church down there. And as our Spanish improved, our conversations improved. It was kind of basic at first, but it kind of kept growing. You can go to the next uh, photo there. <clears throat> we went, got to go to a birthday party of a good friend. And um, yeah, so we're, oh, okay, yeah. It was a birthday party of a friend from church. And we actually could make you know, cohesive sentences um, you can go to the next one. Yeah, and I actually got to experience the peak of my thug life as well while I was down there. It was pretty incredible. I stayed in this halfway house with these guys who opened their home to me. We do a homestay down there to, um, uh, for a week. We, we stay with a local family and see what it's like living in their home, what the culture is like. And so all of this training, culture and language, it's supposed to teach us how we're going to do that overseas in this next context. Um, you can go to the next. And we also got to start um, a business proposal for uh, a business in TJ. We're not actually starting it, but it was just an idea. And we all do this thing like Shark Tank style where we present a business proposal to these groups of judges. Because all of us, if we're going to close countries, we're going to have to start um, with a, a business to be able to stay in the country. Um, so yeah, we can go to the next. We won a big $100. That was really fun. <laughs> Um, and so as far as me personally, this is where I'm hoping to end up, um, Indonesia. This is from Joshua Project. They, they look at different people groups around the world, and they track how reached they are. And so all these green dots are reached. They have uh, a large enough percentage of a Christian population to be able to continue to spread in that region. But a lot of these people groups, the red ones, um, unreached, and some of those red ones, unreached, unengaged, meaning they don't have access to the gospel in their language. So I would hope to go to one of those red dots. And actually, that little island over there, uh, closer to the right of the screen, is, is where I'm hoping to go. Go to the next slide. Um, we, uh, there, we came into the program, and there was a few other people in the program who actually wanted to go to the same island. So we've been in talks about teaming, and, and it's been cool. One of them is actually here today, Sophia, and with her, with her family. We met down there, and we're dating, and we're, we're praying for next steps. And um, so it's been really exciting getting to meet people down there and putting some, putting some feet and some teeth to what we're trying to do uh, long term. So. Yeah, I'm super thankful for you guys for continuing to send me out. You guys are all part of this work. It's not me. It's, it's the church body sending out. And so thank you guys. And one of the things we got to do while we we're down there is read through missionary biographies. And I was so encouraged by this man, John Payton. He went to an island, maybe two islands down from the one that I'm hoping to go to, so really close by. Really crazy situation. Um, but I'll go ahead and read some of his uh, life here. He was a Scottish missionary. He served 50 faithful years to the islands of present-day Vanuatu, and he writes in his autobiography, uh, The Hardships of the Field. He says, 
uh, that four months after arriving on Tana, the island, his, his wife Mary had a baby boy named Peter after her father. But she showed signs of a fever, and all of a sudden, three days later, she passed away. A week later, their boy Peter died as well. And three months in, he's expecting to go and, and be around his family the whole time, and, and he's alone. And in his lament, he writes, my reason seemed for a time to almost give way. He laid them in the grave and said, when Tana turns to the Lord, men will find that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. As I looked at the students in the picture, like they're gonna do stuff like this and go through persecutions and afflictions, even myself. So even as we're going to the passage today, it's very near and dear to my heart, proclaiming Christ in affliction. Um, now, John Payton, after his wife and son died, he continued going forward. He was trying to start a church in that tribe, and so he, he continued to try to start it, but he was repeatedly under attack. One man, a wild chief, followed him for about four hours with a loaded musket. Others tried to kill him with axes and tomahawks. He got repeated bouts of fever and malaria, and just as a few started coming to Christ after a couple of years, uh, they would ki be killed by others in the tribe or just die from sickness. And so he's out there three, four years getting repeated death threats, and at a certain point, Peyton finds himself surrounded by the natives, and they had guns, weapons, they're urging each other to fire at him. And Peyton, he's just reflecting in his autobiography, his reason was, was reeling, his sight is coming and going and his knees smiting together. I mean, you can just imagine the situation. And he says something really powerful, but I'll share that at the end. None of us are really facing that type of difficulty right now. Uh, that's a little extreme um, for our situation. But I wanna ask the question, how will you respond when you're surrounded and squeezed by the pressures of this world. When you have a baby and you're barely getting sleep and food, let alone catching up with friends or working, or when you're working two jobs just to pay the exorbitant rent and the gas prices apparently now are almost $7, which is insane. <laughs> you're trying to pay all that on top of getting COVID when it's increasingly difficult, for example, to speak about your faith in your work break room or in the classroom with fellow students. How will you respond when you're surrounded by affliction? In our passage today, we see a man afflicted and distressed, yet with a surprising response. So we'll turn to Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And Paul writes this letter. I mean, you can just see it in his tone. You guys could see it probably last week when Pastor Randall preached in the beginning. But it's this letter of friendship. And it, uh, in those letters back in that time, it typically share feelings, sorrows, affection, and longing. And today, this letter might look more like a support letter or a thank you letter from somebody who's on the field, sharing what's going on and, and encouraging you. And, and so it's kind of cool to think about it in that light as we even read today. And there's two points I want to focus on. Um, <clears throat> the question being, what do we see Paul focusing on in his affliction? What do we see Paul focusing on? I tried to alliterate it. There's two points. Uh, one, progressing the gospel even in suffering, and two, proclaiming Christ even in opposition. And so I'll walk through that first point in verses 12 through 14. I'm just gonna kind of go through the text line by line here. And so he starts this 
verse with, I want you to know, brothers. And I just love the main part of this whole sentence, the whole beginning here is he just wants them to know how he's doing. It is this eagerness to share what's been happening, what's, what's going on in his ministry. It's like if you guys have written a letter uh, to a friend and uh, before you get to all the other stuff, you just have to tell them something that just happened. Oh, I just met this person. I just have to let you know. And you start the letter with that. And so this is a unique passage in all of Philippians where there's no advice, no warnings, no promises, no moral imperatives, no exhortations in this passage, none of it, just description. He's just relaying a message. He's letting them know how he's doing. And he even says right after that, I want you to know brothers, the language, I want you to know brothers. Uh, he, he's not speaking to a wall here. He's speaking to, to men that he served alongside and, and suffered along. Philippi was the first church that Paul planted in Europe. We see that in Acts 16. And so they no doubt had special significance to Paul. And he started that church actually being imprisoned. He went there, met Lydia at the river, and then almost immediately after, he got thrown in prison for exercising a demon out of this servant girl. And so he starts this, this church in prison, and now here he is in prison again, and who does he think of while he's suffering in that imprisonment? But his dear brothers in Philippi. And what was their relationship? Paul planted the church about 10 years ago before this letter, and he had visited them probably a few times in between. And so just before this, Paul would have received this huge financial gift from the Philippians, and they weren't super well off, and so it was this huge blessing for him. And you can just see his care just throughout the words of this letter. Um, he cherishes them. In the, past, the passage right before this, he says, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And so this sets up the heartfelt affection and joyful tone that we see in our passage today. And so he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so what has happened to him? Well, even though the language he uses, he doesn't say, what I intended to do, I intended to go to prison. And this is, no, he's just saying, what's happened to me? Circumstances I can't control through this is actually serving to advance the gospel, which is not the ending you'd think he'd say from, oh, man, this imprisonment you'd think he'd be saying is, is really been hard on me or something else. But, he, but he, he's saying this is actually serving to advance the gospel. And um, we, I, I was wondering, you know, what, what is his situation? Where is Paul in prison? What has happened to him exactly? Some say he could be imprisoned in Caesarea or Ephesus, uh, but most commentators agree he's imprisoned in Rome. I would agree since in this letter he mentions an imminent death, the imperial guard in Caesar's household, which would kind of clue that he's in Rome, in which case uh, this would be around 62 AD. And Acts 28, 16 talks about this imprisonment. It's this house arrest in Rome. So it's not like your typical imprisonment in chains and bars. And uh, he actually gets to stay in his own place. I mean, <clears throat> it's not super comfortable, but at the very least, he gets his own place. It says in Acts 28, when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. That's like even impossible in San Diego <laughs> with the soldier who guarded him. So he lived two years there at his own expense with a soldier. And, and what he's saying that what this situation is serving to advance the gospel. What's ironic about this is he's actually in a situation where he can't travel. He can't go from place to place. He's stuck. He's imprisoned in this spot. And he's saying, what's happened to me is advancing the gospel. 
So much so that we read in a second here that throughout the whole imperial guard, it's advancing. Now, who is this, this group? Um, so there, at the time, no army was allowed in Italy, but this imperial guard referred to several thousand soldiers uh, who were Italian soldiers in different cohorts, and they were the emperor's elite bodyguard. So they were clients of the emperor and thus considered part of the emperor's own household. So they were kept loyal with the highest pay in the Roman military. And so if you, see, if you step back for a bit, you start seeing God's plan with this. In the massive scope of the whole Roman Empire, at its height, Paul is getting to buddy up with some of the most important men in Caesar's household. I mean, he's literally tied to them for 24 hours a day. And so uh, he says, it's not only been known throughout this whole imperial guard, but to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, he doesn't specify who all the rest is here, but no doubt other soldiers who were there. We know in Acts 28, he spoke to Jews uh, while he was imprisoned, others in the household of Caesar, which he mentions in the end of Philippians. Um, but you see the gospel is rapidly expanding. And he says, I love it. He says, my imprisonment is for Christ. This is what people are knowing, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so this is a purpose statement. This is what he's saying his prison is for, his imprisonment is for, which is unusual again because prison carried a social stigma. So, so to, to be proud and emphatic about this statement is kind of unusual. It would be like us saying, I got fired from my job for Christ. You know, I got a, the worst grade on my paper in the class for Christ. And, you know, it kind of doesn't hit what, like, oh, how did you? But he's saying in that I'm being persecuted and it's all for Christ. And so he, in this shame, he is proclaiming Christ and proud of, of the fact that he can suffer with Christ. And so in verse 14, we see even more spread. He, he's talking, shifting his gaze to the brothers in Rome. And he says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these brothers, others in Rome, fellow believers who've witnessed his suffering, his imprisonment, and they have become confident. And you'd think that Paul would say they've become confident in Paul and his stalwartness. He doesn't say that. Or they've become confident in themselves. They can do that. Now he says the brothers have become confident in the Lord. Confident in the Lord. Look what the Lord's doing through Paul. Not, through, not, through, not in Paul or in us. It's God who's working. Um, and they're becoming bold to speak the world, uh, the word so much so that in, in the end of Philippians, Paul actually says, all the saints greet you, Philippi, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So already there are saints in Caesar's household that are greeting the Philippians because of this massive spread of the gospel while Paul's in prison. And so it's just a testament to the boldness of faith when somebody shares the gospel and somebody comes to know Christ, uh, how that can just rapidly spread. When I was in um, Tijuana at the missionary uh, training, one of my friends, we're, we're getting toward the end of the year, the last month, and we're, our Spanish is okay, not great enough to share the gospel, but good enough to kind of start. And um, we're kind of starting to check out of the program and planning for stuff after. Um, but my friend, and I think I have a picture of him, um, he, he was reaching out to his friend Carlos. He's the one in the, in the back there. He's reaching out to his friend Carlos, and Carlos just stops talking to him for like three, four months. And then the month before the program ended, Carlos texts again, him again. He's like, I want, to, I want to meet you. 
And my friend's like, okay, I'll meet you. So he goes over to, to meet with him, and, and a group of us are kind of waiting on the roof, and it's getting late, and the sun kind of went down, and we're waiting for him to come back. And finally, my friend comes back from this conversation. And I still remember it. I mean, there's like the moon is out there and the stars, and he's like, guys, I, I think Carlos just accepted Christ. I think he just committed his life to Christ for the first time. And we were shocked. We were like, how did you know if he did or not? And he was like, well, I tried what I could in Spanish, and I was Google translating a little bit, and I didn't really understand his prayer. So there's some uncertainty there, but, but there, there, was, there was a realness in Carlos where he actually started going to church with my friend, and he's been connected now to a church down there. So despite my friend's limited Spanish and, and um, ours as well, like Carlos is moving forward. And, and here we are a month out. We're kind of checking out of the nitty gritty of the program and our friends that we've met down there. And, and we were just convicted, like, man, like, we, we started praying for Carlos and our own friends. And, and after that, like, a, a number of us started reaching out to our friends, like, man, God, and we're not confident in my friend, and we're confident in the Lord, looking what he's doing. And so Paul says the same thing here about these brothers. They just see this example of faith, and they want to push forward. And so what is the catalyst for all this? It's interesting, he mentions his imprisonment. He mentions it three times in this passage. And when an author repeats something like that in this, he's trying to emphasize it. Imprisonment in the Greek is desmos, which is bonds or fetters or chains. And so um, Stephen Lawson in a commentary um, speaks about what this imprisonment could have looked like. For two years, Paul was fastened in chains that were probably extended handcuffs about 18 inches long, like a hand breadth here. These chains were always attached to his wrist and restricted his every movement. Think of the scars on his wrists as he found these. The Praetorian guard were rotated through his rented quarters and his chains were never removed. Day and night, Paul was only 18 inches away from a Roman soldier. And in this changing of the guards, There were probably several dozen soldiers circulating through his room and were attached to him at various times. I mean, talk about low personal privacy. I was sleeping with uh, four guys at the training school, actually, and we're in this 10 foot by 10 foot square. We're barely able to like shuffle through the room without without touching each other's shoulders. And I mean, I thought that was about, thankfully we didn't have, uh, they didn't have us attached uh, with chains to the other guys 24 hours a day. That would have added some stress, I think, to the program. I mean, God would have used it for sure. But I mean, think about this situation. Like Paul's attached to these Roman guards 24 hours a day within 18 inches. Like, just imagine a man standing here just at all times. If he tries to speak, they can hear everything he's saying. If visitors come, they know. If they're vulgar or something else, he just hears everything that they're saying. And so he's thinking, wait a second. I can't escape them, but they can't escape me. They're stuck. I'm going to start sharing the gospel with them. And so that's what he starts doing. That's what's happening. The guys who are attached to him, he's starting to share the gospel with them, and that's how the gospel is going out. Like, look at this man, Paul. (laughs) And so I just want to ask us, who are the people the Lord has placed in your life, those that you're attached to? What circles has the Lord placed you in? And who are the people in your life that maybe you're just kind of invisible, you don't even aware, like the, the, the grocery checker, or, you know, there's people in your life who just, you're not even aware of. There was a, a man actually down in uh, Tijuana that 
helped us with our business project. And he was one of these guys that would see somewhat regularly. And I have a, a picture of him, actually. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we got to see him. He helped out with our business project. And uh, he was telling us about honey and fertilizers. And we're just thinking, we just want to win this project for the judges. Like, let's go. We're going we're gonna to be the first place on the team. And so you know, we're talking with Oscar here in the middle. And, and we're excited about it. But then we kind of you know, move on. Well, about a month ago, actually, Oscar um, passed away. And he's 47 years old. He had a heart attack in the morning. Nobody was expecting it. And his family, who had helped us with his business project, like, it, it, it hit us. Like, we were totally treating this man like just an, a means to an end so that we could get a good score on this tiny business project. And he just passed away. A man who we're pretty sure didn't know the Lord. And so the implications of it just hit us toward the end of the program. <sighs> like, who are the people in your life that God has put there who may not know the gospel message unless you share it with them? And man, this hit us hard. We went to his funeral the next day, and here, here he is at the back. He's just sitting. I mean, sorry, he's, he's laying down in this casket. There's his, his wife, Floor, his kids, and they're just weeping. And we got to share the gospel with them, but... We, we wish we could have said more to, to, to Oscar. And um, it was such a sobering reminder of these people in our lives. We take for granted. I mean, living every day and going life as usual, but people are living and dying, and there's not a lot of opportunity in some places. And so just after that, we actually ended up, um, my language helper I was showing you earlier, his name is Victor. Um, he's the guy I was attached to. I mean, we literally had to do language sessions three days a week. And so I'm just thinking, this is just to help me with my language learning. I started to realize, the Lord has put this man in my life, and he can't escape. He's hired to do this. So I could, I could speak with him. I, and so we, we went out to dinner with him, and we got to have a spiritual conversation with him and his dad. And, and he's going to be continued connected with the students next year. But just, just be aware. Who are those people in your life who you're not even aware of that the Lord has placed there? Who are the Oscars and the victors that the Lord has placed in your life? And second, what will be your response to hardship? See, on top of the physical burden and lack of personal privacy, the house imprisonment that Paul experienced could have been a source of great anguish, particularly with the possibility of execution looming, not to mention the social stigma and shame related to his imprisonment. So Paul could have talked all about this in this description of how he's doing to the Philippians. This is how I'm doing. He could have said, and I just kind of wrote something here, what he could have said, I want you to know, brothers, I've been suffering gravely at the hands of the Roman Empire. My chains cut into my wrists. I get no sense of privacy with the, the Roman guards always within an arm's reach. More than this, I have a looming fear of being called to my execution with the Emperor Nero Caesar getting more and more strict. I'm lonely and tired of this work. But he doesn't say any of that. Uh, he doesn't focus on his own pain and suffering. In his view, and I was trying to ask, why isn't he talking about his suffering more? His problems are so small. His imprisonment is so small in comparison to Christ being proclaimed that he acknowledges his imprisonment only in their relation to spreading the gospel. It's, it's so small in comparison to what the Lord is doing. And so when we're pressed, when we, uh, when we are, are, are squeezed in by the pressure of the world, do we maximize our suffering to where the promises of God seem non-existent in comparison? Or do we have a response of, of self-pity where we're, where we're 
looking at all the th- ways we've suffered, and I was looking up, um, John Piper has a great quote on self-pity. He says, in future grace, boasting is the response of pride to success. <clears throat> self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. So if Paul had this self-pitying attitude, he would be pointing out, look at all these ways I've suffered, like have pity on me. Um, And for us, oh, it's so easy to focus on ourselves in suffering. I remember when COVID first hit, everybody is just like, like, comfort and self, like, let's, let, let me insulate myself from, from anything that is difficult. And so there's a real suffering and afflictions going on. But I noticed in myself this, like, desire to, to uh, just, just feel better and not do anything difficult. And everybody in society was saying that, just take care of yourself and don't do anything hard. And when you're suffering, like, that's our natural tendency is just to kind of insulate and not think about other people and just think about ourselves. And if you don't struggle with that, then there might be self-sufficiency. Um, Paul could have catered to the Greek and Stoic philosophers who typically declared that neither imprisonment nor death mattered, only one's attitude. He could have said something like this, I want you to know, brothers, I'm suffering in Rome, yet I remain strong. Indeed, imprisonment will not stop my fortitude. I can withstand whatever is in my way. If I die in this process, may I be remembered for my unchanging will and patience in suffering. And so here he's, if he'd said that, he'd be pointing to his attitude in it. And this, I struggle with this more. I was, I was uh, throwing up all night one of the days when I was down there, <laughs> some food poisoning or something. The tacos can do some damage. Uh, and I remember in the morning, my roommate asked me, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm fine, man. I got it. He's like, do you want some like medicine or something? No, I'm fine. Like, I got it. And I was thinking, wow, I'm going through this pretty well. Like, I got a good attitude. I'll just throw up one more time. Okay, we're good. You know, like, and I'm getting through this. But as I reflect back on that, looking at this passage, this self-sufficient, like, look at my attitude in this. I'm getting through this suffering. So whether it's self-pity or self-sufficiency, we can fall into both of these ditches. ditches. And the way... um, that Paul treats it is so different. The problem with that way of treating suffering is this self-focus. But when Paul shares, it's not that, but it's about the glory of Christ. He puts his affliction in perspective and shares what God is doing through it. This passage isn't saying, don't talk about your suffering. I don't want you to leave just to never talk about your suffering again after this. That's not what this is saying. This is just a description of Paul. And, and even in other letters, he describes his suffering. In 2 Corinthians, he says, he talks about his imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And he goes on. So he, he shares his sufferings, but it's not about that. It's about your focus in your suffering. When we are squeezed by the pressures of this world, may we have our gaze properly fixed on Christ's glory and seek to proclaim him even in affliction. And so we'll turn to the second part of this passage and the second point where Paul describes further opposition. And so uh, here we have two types of preachers he mentions. And so he introduces that with some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. And so he starts describing these two types of preachers. And so on top of his imprisonment, on top of the shame and other things he might be feeling from that, 
now you have these preachers who are preaching from envy and rivalry. Now, they're preaching from envy and rivalry. It's describing their motive or or inner intention, Um, their ulterior motive. They, They want what Paul has, the longing for power. And rivalry, that word kind of refers to, to strife or contention or, or a, a bitter disagreement, like when Paul talks about, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Paul. He uses the same word rivalry. It's this one-upping and wanting to, to um, get advantage over another person. So these, these other preachers who see Paul's imprisonment in Rome, ah, finally, he's in prison. Yeah, no, this is my opportunity to get, to get going in my ministry. And so they're preaching Christ and that they're preaching, they're proclaiming Christ, but just with this, this ulterior motive. He also describes the others, those who are preaching from goodwill. And their underlying motive is this good pleasure. It's their joy to, to preach Christ. And so uh, I'll call them the allies and the antagonists here. The allies, there's, there's the, they're doing similar things. They're both responding to Paul's imprisonment. They're both preaching Christ. So both of them are believers. But the allies are preaching from a correct motive of love and a correct perspective. They understand that the Lord is intentionally putting Paul there. That's what he says uh, in verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So part of their response is, is a correct perspective of what's happening. Knowing that Paul wasn't left there, he wasn't abandoned there, he wasn't condemned there, he was put there. It is the Lord's will to have him in chains. And I love the phrase he uses there. He was put there for the defense of the gospel. This is another purpose statement. And he is, he's using um, legal language. It's, it's, it's the term defend, which is in Greek apologia, where we get the word apologetics. It's a term borrowed from the court setting. In Roman custom, when someone was accused of a crime, it was the legal process to make a defense to the accusers face-to-face concerning their charges. So in Acts, Festus describes this process to King Agrippa. He says, usually in Roman custom, we have the person who's accused make a defense about themselves. And so Paul defends himself. And in this case, you'd think, as Paul's being imprisoned and maligned by all these people, that he would be defending himself. But he doesn't say that. If you look closely, what is he saying? I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. He doesn't care if he's in prison. He's not trying to defend himself against innocent, and he does in in other cases. But in this passage, he wants to defend the gospel, and that's what he cares about, not even himself. And so he also describes the second group, the antagonist, in verse 17 there. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so again, we see their motive and it's wrong, it's selfish ambition. They're seeking followers, adherence. They're wanting to get ahead of Paul as a way to put his ministry down and increase his distress. And their perspective is wrong. They're seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment, implying that they don't understand God's purpose in imprisoning Paul. And so we have this, this correct perspective and correct motive that Paul is pointing to. And what is Paul's response to these, these people who are intentionally putting him down, these brothers, What could have Paul said? He could have said, I reject these brothers and they ought to be removed. But no, he says, what then? And only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed. This phrase you'll see again repeated three times in this paragraph. So Paul is emphasizing it. 
whether it's pretense, whether preaching out of this false reason that appears to be faithful, Christ is proclaimed. Whether it's truth, the Greek word aletheia, not merely truth as spoken, truth of idea, reality, sincerity, straightforwardness, in that, Christ is proclaimed. And, and so we kind of ask the question, is Paul tolerating selfish ambition as a motive to preach? What is he saying here? By no means. In Philippians 2, 3, just a few verses later, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So what is he saying? Well, Paul is not focusing on his slights, the fact that he's being personally attacked by these other men because the glory of Christ is so much greater in his mind. And he says, in that I rejoice. So in this situation, he's caring more as long as Christ is proclaimed, like that is what I'm gonna focus on. Just look at the tone of how Paul writes. He doesn't complain. He doesn't want sympathy. He's not manipulating emotion. He doesn't have a martyr spirit. He wants his readers to be more confident in their witness for the gospel, and he is joyous, excited to share this news. He says, in this I rejoice what's happening. And this word joy, rejoice, appears more than a dozen times in Philippians, more than any other of Paul's writings. And you look at his, you guys heard his situation. How is he rejoicing in this? And that, that is the tone of where he's at. He's so unaware, he's so further aware of Christ's and what he's doing, that his, his circumstances uh, barely even affect the way that he thinks about it. And so when we are suffering from affliction or opposition, we can tend to focus inward in self-pity and bitterness. And when people are putting us down, ugh, just the bitterness and vengeance that we have and, and insulating and separating ourselves from proclaiming Christ. I remember um, this last week toward the end of the program, uh, we had finished most of the requirements of the program, and so I just kind of switched off in my head uh, talking to other be- people about Jesus. My relationship with the Lord wasn't great, and there's kind of a lot of things that we had going on, and then I got super sick, and I was preparing this sermon, and so I'm just stressed trying to say goodbye to everybody, and I just noticed how quickly I turned off in when I was suffering and preparing this sermon, talking about it, how I just turned off in my mind caring for other people. Ah, oh, just too tired. Like, ah, oh, it's just, it's been, I've been sick. And, but um, that is our typical response. That is our fallen condition. And friends, we don't have the strength to do it. <laughs> we, we can't have this joyful perspective in our suffering. It doesn't come from us. And that's the good news in this passage. The Lord gives us strength to proclaim Christ despite the worst circumstances. And the hope is that the Lord uses us sinners to proclaim this gospel. Look at this man, Paul. A life completely gripped with Christ, proclaiming Christ every chance he can get. And the reason why he's able to write this letter is because another stopped him on the road to Damascus 30 years earlier. This man who called Paul out of his blindness, blindness, he knew him, he walked with him. This one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
This is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, this man who met him on the road. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says that in a few verses because he is just stricken by this man who met him on the road to Damascus, radically changed his life from being the one who was afflicting and persecuting other people to the one who's now proclaiming Christ. And though Christ hasn't appeared to us in a vision on Damascus, the same Christ who Paul was gripped by abides in us and walks with us. And though we don't have Paul's direct order to go to the Gentiles, we clearly have a great commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. If Paul can do that in chains, attached to a guard for 24 hours and being put down by his own brothers, how much more ought we to proclaim Christ in a country with religious freedom surrounded by brothers and sisters who can encourage us? And how much more ought we to obey Jesus' commission as a church to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth and even the ends of our streets? So what is your response when you are maligned by others? Do you see it as an opportunity to advance the gospel, to proclaim Christ? And know that wherever you are, the Lord has placed you with people to be a witness for his kingdom, even in suffering and affliction. And number two, how can you turn to Christ and proclaim him in your worst moments. When you're suffering, even if it's just with the little ounce of energy, just placing that on Christ because he'll give you the strength to continue through it. And it happens when we're overtaken like Paul is, just gripped by this man, by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we return to the story of John Payton as I started. The natives are seeking to kill him with tomahawks, they run him, trying to run him off the island. Peyton narrowly escapes that situation where he's being surrounded, and he runs with just the precious few belongings that he has, his, a few changes of clothing and, and his uh, translation that he's working on, and he runs to this chestnut tree. So Peyton climbs in the tree alone. And hours he's spent there hearing muskets and the yells of natives, feeling at any point he may breathe his last. Yet as he sat there among the branches, this is what he says. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And then he asked the question to the readers. And I ask you today, if thus thrown back upon your soul, alone, all, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this example of Paul and the way that he proclaimed Christ, Lord, despite his situation. May we be encouraged by his example, Lord, and may our lives be filled with proclaiming you, Lord. May, we, may our hearts be gripped with you, Lord, in every circumstance that we have, Lord. May we, see, may we say with Paul, what then? 
only that in every way Christ is proclaimed and I rejoice. We pray this in your precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.